I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Today I'll be talking to my guest, Maria Naylor. She's currently a senior medical director at a company that does clinical research on multiple sclerosis. She's a PhD in genetics, though, from Harvard University, and has met 10 different Nobel laureates in her life. So we are going to be talking about the 1953 paper that earned James Watson and Francis Crick a Nobel Prize for their model of the structure of DNA. I'm going to jump right into our conversation because Maria can describe the state of research at the time and the significance of this discovery better than I can. Hi, Maria. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, So... I was delighted, obviously, when you suggested doing this topic. I don't think I ever would have landed on it myself, but once I started learning about it, I realized that it just pulls together so many of the elements that we've been seeing and talking about. Um, they're all sort of inside the story of of how the structure of DNA was discovered and uh, published. Um, but reading the book, the uh, Double Helix, the Watson account of how this paper came out, I realized I actually don't know what was known right before this paper came out. Do you yeah. do you mind describing like where was the state of the science right before it came out on this subject? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and it's uh, an important point to ground ourselves in because so much has happened since that original Nature article was published sixty eight years ago. Um, so, DNA was first isolated um, in eighteen sixty nine, which wasn't long after Gregor Mendel um, established his Mendelian rules of inheritance, you know, the P experiment. Those experiments were carried out. Um, in the 1850s and 60s, and then in 1869, a Swiss physician um, first isolated DNA, um, actually from pus, um, from surgical bandages, which is really gross to think about. I don't know what he was doing staring at these bandages, but he saw something. And um, DNA is wiggling around. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's amazing. Honestly, that's just amazing when you think about the state of the scientific equipment at that time that that he could figure that out. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, since that time, DNA was playing second fiddle to, to protein, really. And I would say biology and biochemistry in general were playing second fiddle to physics and chemistry. So the first part of the 20th century were really was really dominated by physics. You know, you had Einstein, and you had later on, you know, before World War II, all of the discoveries around nuclear fission, which eventually led to the bomb. And biology and biochemistry weren't really at the forefront of most people's minds. Um, But after the war, a lot of physicists um, started turning into chemists and biochemists and biologists. That um, was Crick, right? Like, didn't Crick come out of physics and into... Yes. Biology and isn't Franklin a chemist? Yes. So it was already like all three disciplines in this in this scene. Exactly, and X-ray crystallography unto itself requires one to have uh, an understanding of physics. Yeah. In order to conduct the experiments, so at the time that all of these uh, groups are chasing the structure of DNA, what was known was that genes were responsible for heredity. Um, 
and it was likely DNA and not protein that was responsible for genetic inheritance. What would the protein have been? I'm sorry to interrupt, but what would the protein have been? Like, were there specific proteins that they were looking at that might have been the thing? There are proteins that are um, associated with with DNA. It's all, DNA is not just a, when you look at the double strand, it's not just this double helix that's floating around in your cells. Yeah. It's wrapped up in, in bundles of protein. And so um, it, it was, and people weren't sure initially whether it was DNA or protein. And a lot of people favored protein because protein is complex and they had a better understanding of it. There was a really critical set of experiments conducted by a team, Hershey and Chase, in which they um, pretty much definitively identified that it was DNA that was the genetic material and not protein. Um, Hershey went on to when a Nobel Prize associated with that work. Chase, being a woman, was left out. And we can get into that yeah. later. Um, sure around how so many yeah. women have been left out of science. Yeah. Um, people yeah. knew that about RNA, but mostly associated with viruses. And so, um, and then people also knew that DNA had a regular structure that could be crystallized. But um, no one had really any idea about what that structure might look like or where the different components and the three main components are the phosphate group, the sugar groups, and the the different bases, um, how those all lined up. Yeah. And I think there's a great opening line that that Watson writes about in his book when he says, you know, DNA was still a mystery. It was up for grabs and no one was sure who would get it and whether he would deserve it (laughs) if it proved to be as exciting as we semi-secretly believed. It's a great introduction to his book. He later describes it as it's like a battle, it, like or a city. It's like I think the DNA will fall soon. Yes, um, which it does sort of feel like that's the the mindset they have that they're there's so much excitement in it in the the book in the way that he's talking about how they were approaching this problem. A lot of excitement and a lot of secrecy and a lot of sense that if someone goes out to coffee at the wrong moment, they'll miss the big reveal. Yeah. I mean, if you take it at face value, the book is, is, is entertaining. It's, it's well-written, right? It, it really, uh, it grabs you and it's, it's, it lets you, I was, you know, entertained the whole way through. If you really just don't think too much about what exactly he's writing about. Um, Um, Oh, Horrible yeah. things he, he says about people. I mean, he's a he's a very colorful writer. Well, so I sometimes felt okay. I agree with you that I was entertained the whole time. It's also not very long. Um, I also sometimes felt like he was writing like a high schooler describing friend drama, where he doesn't really know which of these facts is interesting. Like he didn't know how to rank facts in terms of importance necessarily. Sometimes he just wants to tell you everything he remembers that happened that day. Yeah, that's, I think you're, you're right. And probably reflects um, the way his mind was split where he's really, really interested in chasing after the structure of DNA, but he's also really, really interested in chasing after attractive women. Definitely. Um, And I, I don't, I mean, I'm going to edit out how long my indignant pause is here, but (laughs) (laughs) I guess the way to frame the thing I want to say is he says so much about himself and about what it means to be in a research 
university at this time and in this place without even necessarily having the self-awareness to realize what he's saying and how terrible it is. But the um, there are so many facts about research universities. I started looking at like what what is the history of research universities? How did this group of people come together in this context? It's such a weird and unique thing that these people would be together in this very, very intimate overlap of all of their passions and their jobs and their physical space. And they have these assumptions that they all agree on where Americans will try to do things that other people are trying to do, but English people will say that's the guy who's going to figure out DNA and it would be ungentlemanlike for me to try to figure out DNA if he's working on it. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That that kind of world doesn't exist anymore. Um, But I don't even know that the world existed at the time. I just think that they had all these stories that they were telling themselves about what they were doing and why the the tiniest nudge of pressure on any of these things could collapse. They didn't have peer review, for instance. It was barely peer review. What? Yeah, it was it was barely peer review. I mean, they, you know, they got um, someone from their lab to to read through it and and push it through. Yeah, Yeah, I think. The way science was done was was quite different. The way the structures, the social structures around a lab were, were quite different as well. Yeah, the, their belief that what they were doing, sorry, this is like such a cliche, but <laughs> believe that what they're doing is like science and then what they're actually doing is just society the the amount that that they're that they feel comfortable just being completely utterly unethical in the way that they treat Rosalind Franklin and yeah I think it, it's a it's not to be cliche cliche but it was also a product of the times right so there weren't many women in science um, and. Rosalind Franklin, unfortunately, had a, a double whammy or maybe a triple whammy. You know, she was a woman, she was young, and she was Jewish. And I think there was a lot of prejudice and and misconceptions about her. I mean, even in the book, you know, she's thought of as just a technician who's going to teach Wilkins about x-ray crystallography and help him perfect his, you know, what he's doing in his lab. There's no, you know, it's clear that he didn't see her as an equal he didn't even see her as a person who had a job. Like he keeps on being snide about her continuing to hang around the lab, believing she has a job when she's not pretty enough. And if she really like took care with her appearance, maybe she'd be worth hiring or, but I mean, clearly she does. She is actually a scientist in the lab. I actually, I copied this into my notes cause I wanted to read this part aloud which is the part where he actually figures out what he needs to know to get the double helix. Um, that he, he goes into Rosalind's office without knocking and starts antagonizing her about how he thinks she doesn't know how to read x-rays. And she gets angry and comes around the desk. And so he starts saying like, Oh no, she's going to attack me. She's going to physically attack me. And uh, that's when Maurice comes in. And so um, 
then James says to Maurice, oh, she's going to attack me. I see what you're putting up with all of this time when you had to work with her. She's so awful. And then he says, my encounter with Rosie opened up Maurice to a degree that I had not seen before. Now that I need no longer merely imagine the emotional hell he had faced during the past two years, he could treat me almost as a fellow collaborator rather than as a distant acquaintance with whom close confidences inevitably led to painful misunderstandings. To my surprise, he revealed that with the help of his assistant, Wilson, he had quietly been duplicating some of Rosie's and Gosling's x-ray work. Thus, there need not be a large time gap before Maurice's research efforts were in full swing. Then they had even more important cat, the even more important cat was let out of the bag. Since the middle of the summer, Rosie had evidence for a new three-dimensional form of DNA. It occurred when DNA molecules were surrounded by a large amount of water. When I asked what the pattern was like, Maurice went into the adjacent room to pick up a print of the new form they called the B structure. The instant I saw the picture, my mouth fell open and my pulse began to race. And so that from the exploratorium annotation of the the paper, they say this is perhaps the most pivotal moment in the research in the search for DNA structure. Wilkins, that's Maurice, shows Watson one of Franklin's photographs without Franklin's permission. As Watson recalled, the instant I saw the picture, my mouth fell open and my pulse began to race. Um, to Watson, the cross-shaped pattern of spots in the photo meant that DNA had to be a double helix. Um, so that's kind of the moment it all comes together for him, which is thrilling on the one hand, but on the other hand, he steals her research specifically by using the like, we're all men here. We all understand women are crazy. Yeah. Move. It's, it's really horrible. Um, I mean, throughout the book, the descriptions of Franklin are just, it, it, it makes your skin crawl I, of women in general too. Um, they're really just seen as these emotional objects um, to be either chased after or to be scorned. Uh, you know, Franklin's photograph, it's, it's called Photograph 51. Yeah. Or Photo 51. Um, it was actually taken by her graduate student at the time, Gosling. Mm-hmm. But it was a, a key moment. But another one of Franklin's key insights was that she she kept insisting that this the sugar phosphate backbone was not on the inside as everyone else was assuming it was, but that it was on the outside. And, and no one wanted to listen to her. And I think at some point in the book, Watson referred to that, you know, her references to the the backbone being on the outside was just some feminist ranting. Yes, um, yes I remember that. <laughs> what, is, what does that have to do with feminism? But, you know, she, she had two very keen observations, right? One was the photograph and the other was the observation around the backbone being on the, the outside. Um, yeah. You know, to be, to be fair, there were other key um, elements that Watson and Crick were, were considering in their model. Right. So the, the, the first is really the, the whole idea of a helical structure, which came about when Linus Pauling announced, you know, the structure of, uh, I think it was collagen that he, he elucidated to great fanfare. Yes. And then, Pauling, oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say Pauling is another of these people where you can see that even while they're talking about how elemental DNA is, it's actually society that is constantly tripping these people up and preventing them from speaking to each other clearly or correctly communicating what needs to be said. Like the, the fact that he 
Pauling was foiled in his attempt to see the X-ray photos of DNA from King's College, where uh, Watson and Crick are, crucial evidence that inspired Watson's vision of the double helix, and had to settle for inferior older photographs. In 1952, Wilkins and the head of, uh, so Wilkins is Maurice in the earlier thing, Wilkins and the head of the King's Laboratory had denied Pauling's request to view their photos. Pauling was planning to attend a science meeting in London, where he most likely would have renewed his request in person, but the United States House Un-American Activities Committee <laughs> halted Pauling's trip, citing his anti-war activism. Yeah, uh, I mean, he was a suspected communist, and he was a peace activist. He actually won a second Nobel Prize, uh, the Peace uh, Prize, for the peace peace activism. Prize, yes. Yeah, so one of the, the few people to win two Nobel Prizes for different topics or different achievements. But um, I, I think that that point, point is a little bit debatable because he did eventually get to the UK and he did have the opportunity to visit Wilkins and Franklin in their lab and, and didn't. So yeah, I, I think that's, you know, him being denied the, that crucial evidence is, might be a little bit overblown because he, he eventually did have the chance to and, and, and kind of turned it down. Um, you know, in, in the book, they describe his, um, you know, his proposed model that he was very excited about um, in the form of a triple helix. Yeah. But yeah. he had, um, you know, maybe I don't know what it is, overconfidence or not paying attention to the details, you know, had, had left out some crucial, um, uh, you know, key bits that were necessary to ensure that the model was accurate. Pauling, you know, and his alpha helix, that was setting, you know, everyone's minds on on the the trajectory of a helix, helical structure. And then there's there's Chargaff, who's another colorful character, and his rule that in discovery that, you know, A's and T's, anions and thymines were in equal um, proportions, and, and G's and C's, guanines and cytosines, were also in, in equal proportion to each other, was, was a key, key part of figuring out the structure. Um, you know, there's also John Griffith, who's a quantum mechanics expert and he worked out some of the the calculations to show that that the a's and t's could you know could bind to each other um and the same thing for g's and c's there's you know there's jerry donahue who um, was an american chemist and his observation that watson was using the wrong um forms of t and g yeah. Um, you know i, I think all of it, it kind of when i read this book it reminded me again that any discovery is the culmination of, of work from many other people, right? And it kind of brings up the question of like, who contributes to a discovery? Who gets credit? Um, yes, Franklin was a, was a key figure, but there, there were a lot of other people's research that was drawn upon. Oh, for sure. I actually, um, I, I somewhat get hung up on the Franklin story just because it's so shitty, you know? Um, but I'm sure, you know, I can get in line behind a lot of other people who felt that way about it. Um, I think that the scale of the collaboration is um, it gets at one of the things that I think is essential about the 20th century and why the 20th century is not like all the other centuries necessarily. And that is, I think uh, at world war one, the need for science engineering and culture, intellectual work in general in order to maintain uh, any kind of military dominance meant that societies needed to pull intellectual workers from a bigger percentage of their population. They needed to get 
the people who had previously only been doing other forms of work, like baby having, you know, all of the like child work, they needed some of those people to become intellectual workers and they needed to get people who had been in an underclass for race reasons and stuff like that, that if a society was going to remain dominant, uh, they were just going to have to pull intellectual labor out of way more of their society than they previously had. And I think that they only had these very, very rinky dink structures for enabling that kind of um, collaboration. And you can see how badly the university works as a structure for creating this collaboration that has to be international. It has to include people who don't really know how to talk to each other. It has to support them financially. It has to uh, give them dinners because they talk to each other over dinner as well as, you know, there's all of these different layers of how the people are connecting with each other and talking to each other and all of the factors that are making it even harder. Like um, at one point Watson is like losing his funding and he can only get a new grant if he studies at this place, not that place. And uh, he has to get his paperwork in order because he's American he's in England. And that's not how things are for Darwin. And I think that that big main difference about why it was even possible to get all those people, all of those scientists kind of aiming in the same direction and working on the same problem, even while Watson is talking about it as something that he personally feels competitive about being the one who's going to do it. Um, It seems like the scale of the collaboration is really a uniquely 20th century thing. And it's, it's absolutely necessary because every question that's being asked is, is increasingly more complex. And so you have to have experts who are um, experts in a, in a sub, you know, increasing subfields and subfields of subfields. Um, you know, he, he admits toward the end of the book, which was interesting, that, um, you know, without having John Griffith, the American chemist in his lab, pointing out, like, you've got to use it or it was Jerry Donahue, you know, that you have to use a different form. You have to use the the keto form, not the enol form of of TNG. Without that hint, without that clue, he would have been uh, completely off. And who knows if he ever would have come across, you know, solving the structure. And that Franklin and Wilkins were more isolated in their their labs. They didn't have um, these close collaborations with, you know, cross-disciplinary experts. And I think it highlights the need for, for collaboration and, 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 and interacting with many different people in your field. It's, it's a key part of doing science. It is. I, I think that it's, it, it's like a, a thing that was needed that society had no blueprint for doing. They didn't have any metaphors for a non-hierarchical sharing of information and expertise like that. Like all of his metaphors come from, you know, uh, the army being a general, the, you know, the thing I was saying at the top of the uh, episode about DNA falling like a city and all of his ways of understanding women are like, how hard is this woman trying to be attractive to me? Uh, And so he just doesn't know how to process the idea that a woman could be a fellow scientist 
the yeah, the, the women are his his sister, who's a typist and who makes him spend his money on her fancy French suits. Um, <laughs> yes, and and who's he's trying to use to like further his collaboration with Wilkins. Yes, he's hoping <laughs> that his sister will flirt with the other scientists to like get in good. Yeah. Um, and I actually I wanted to um, we just did an episode. It's not out yet while we're recording this about Jenny Holzer, who's a sort of a conceptual artist or an artist whose work is sort of based on thoughts that she's thinking as opposed to, as opposed to images, even though she's a visual artist. So I was looking at when did that start in relation to this scientific situation where the ideas that they have are what's at stake. They're, um, Sorry, my, I, I'm trying to say a big thing and my words aren't all lining up. Um, they're competitive about their ideas. The idea is the thing that they're pursuing. And if somebody slips up and says the wrong thing, then somebody else will get the idea first. And that, that's a thing that was true in art. Uh, from I, I think that the term conceptual art was first written in 1967, so that's a little bit later. Uh, that's Saul Lewitt, I think, is the person who first said that, according to something I was reading, Wikipedia probably. Um, but at this point in the 50s, Clement Greenberg was talking about, okay, I'm going to read this quote. According to Greenberg, modern art followed a process of progressive reduction and refinement toward a goal of defining the essential formal nature of each medium. Those elements that ran counter to this nature were to be reduced. The task of painting, for example, was to define precisely what kind of object a painting truly is, what makes it a painting and nothing else, which seems incredibly close to the pursuit of DNA, right? That you're trying to figure out exactly what the thing is. Yes, because they're aware that DNA is genetic material. It's responsible for heredity, but... um, they they need to know the structure in order to really further understand it. Um, yeah, and I, there's a, there's a quote in the book where, um, you know, Watson says, you know, deep down, you know, it's impossible to describe the behavior of something when you don't know what it is, and that's definitely true for for DNA, and it, it really captured, um, I would say, the public's imagination in a way that many scientific discoveries have not since then. I mean, I would say. The, the number of scientific celebrities you could probably count on your hand, right? There's Einstein, who is by far the, the, the granddaddy of scientific celebrities. And then it's you kind of scratch your head wondering who's next. And, and maybe you could say Watson and Crick is like the, the pair together, roll off the tongue is, is a second place. Well, Darwin, I mean, he uh, Watson at some point like talks about wanting to sort of pick up Darwin's work. Um, and I thought that that was interesting because I think Einstein and Darwin did really they did really change what people think they're doing as people. The thing that I, the thing that I wanted to say about this is I think that a lot of times the way that DNA captures the imagination is the idea that we have traits that are sort of programmed into us that, that we don't need society to, uh, to make true it. Like the fact that Watson eventually gets, um, 
thrown out of a lab for saying that different it's like mm-hmm. it's just pure racism right it's like different races have different traits genetically or something like like you can see that so much of what he's actually encountering is a social circumstance where the existing metaphors and um like the social contract that he knows how to obey does not apply in this circumstance and they have to sort of work around it in order to get their work done to get the research done at all. They have to work around all of these various different rules for behavior between different people. Um, Although he didn't have to follow that, that many rules when he was pursuing the structure of DNA. No, but other Um, people did. (laughs) Other people did. That's right. There was, there was a a different tiered system for others. Um, And because he was a white male and he, I almost think as an American, he kind of got a free pass for some of his behavior. Um, People wrote it off as eccentric or kind of a mad scientist type behavior. Um, Yeah, that's, that's what I mean that, that, um, that he could look at that situation where clearly the deck is stacked in his favor and against all of these other people, not all of these other people, but many of these other people he's discounting. And then saying like, oh, it's just because they're genetically less, you know, less likely to invent stuff than me, I guess. Um, It's just interesting to see that happening in concert with a bunch of changes in the arts that are basically giving people formats for thinking about what does a society mean where we share power differently? What does a society mean where intellectual labor is necessary for the society to function? Yeah, and what, what does it mean when you strip it all down? Yeah, what does it mean to strip something down completely and find out what its essence is? And it, like, I think that sometimes those artistic uh, changes are seen as just piggybacking on the science. But I think that they're actually explaining ourselves to ourselves, much like DNA is explaining ourselves to ourselves like, what are we actually doing? And I think that that his lack of self-awareness about what he's actually doing as he's describing himself, I don't know, I guess we were both, we were both talking about that earlier. Like he's, he's so focused on his research with. Yeah. uh, he. um, And the the strange thing is right. Like this, this book, the double helix was written in, in 68. So he's had like 15 years to, to think about and reflect upon his younger self and it doesn't show that much personal growth right like he he writes the way he probably would have written when when he discovered the double helix it's it's depressing um yeah and and i would say that you know referring back to the comments you you were mentioning that he he's made since then um even you know a few years ago i would say on you know, on sex, on race, on sexuality, on intellect, even on obesity. I mean, he's just... (laughs) What a prize. (laughs) He's just all over the place. And he he clearly doesn't think that what he's saying is wrong. And and I think part of that is um, all of these prejudices that were accepted back in the day and that he, uh, you know, was never questioned on. I think it's also... um, probably a a factor that he, you know, he achieved success very young and it colored the rest of his life. And, um, it's, 
it's an example of, of someone kind of getting too high on the, on the power that he has. And, and interestingly, like, you know, Pauling in a similar way went along a similar trajectory, not as badly as Watson. I mean, he did win a second Nobel prize for his peace efforts, but he eventually started going off on this tangent around advocating for mega doses of vitamins and how vitamin C could cure everything, you know, cancer, aging, and, and, and people just thought he was crazy. And it was sad because he was a revered scientist and peace activist. And then his, last contribution was to advocate for vitamin C. And it, it makes you scratch your head and wonder where that fine line is between, I don't know, genius and madness. Yeah. I, I think that that's actually a a vote in favor of the research university system because there is such a thing as peer review. It is not just, um, gentleman naturalists like, um, like Darwin. I was looking at details of Darwin's life because uh, Watson does explicitly say that he wants to kind of continue this. And, you know, Darwin wasn't a professor. He fully funded his own research and he was educated in Edinburgh. I mean, you obviously know this, but I'll say he's educated in Edinburgh because you weren't allowed to ask certain questions in, uh, in England at the time. And, his degree of materialism was seen as uh, what's the word that I deviant. He was, he was um, the questions he was asking were, were seen as deviant. And I think we all know that Darwin was considered um, like what he was saying was considered shocking and is still shocking. Um, But it's interesting how much Watson is not, shocking that what he's saying in fact is just feeding directly into power at the time he's saying it it's what everyone wants to hear on some on some level right yeah i mean in in one sense he's an outsider but in in another sense he is the ultimate insider exactly like i don't even see a lot of outsider he's like oh i wasn't good at sports (laughs) and he dressed yeah and his hair was horrible but he he really does wear that as a badge of honor yeah, yeah. I um, in in our episode about uh, what it is the the paper. What is it like to be a bat? <laughs> said <laughs> which I listened to and did not understand at all. Oh, you it did. was so over my head. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, no, one of the one of the points that I made in that, and I um, sorry, I'm going to pull a, a jerk move here and, and quote one of Sandy's emails saying that I'm right about something, but I, I it's for a larger, it's for a larger purpose. Um, so in that, I was saying that I think that um, materialism was seen as sort of the outsider status and certainly in Darwin's time. Um, and idealism was sort of associated with religion and was like the insider, like a uh, conservative position to hold. And I was uh, saying that, that by the seventies, those two had switched places. And I think it's, I think you can see that in uh, the fact that Watson is not an outsider at all. What he's saying is not shocking. What he's saying is actually uh, it's what people want to hear is that, that human characteristics have to do with their genes and that those are found in the body um, that it'll explain more than you think that you that more than you think about yourself is can be explained by stuff about your body 
uh, at that point is sort of the power position. And um, Sandy had sent me this email where she said, um, I just finished rereading 1984. And a thing I did not remember is the entire bit about making Winston admit that two plus two is five is predicated on idealism. That is the evil party torturer O'Brien explicitly tells Winston that the party can alter the past and change reality because all phenomena are in the mind and there is no material reality. And that's from 1949. Hmm. And I think that that's, I think that that's a point at which idealism is starting to seem sinister. It's starting to seem less like the thing that everyone just ought to believe because they're good religious people. Um, anyway, I just, I think that this is a little earlier than the seventies, but I think that you can kind of see the, you can see things changing that clearly Watson believes that he is a Darwin type person, even though he's doing research in a completely different circumstance, way more collaborative way more supported by the broader society and it, that something really fundamental has changed and is changing about what it means to describe human phenomena as fundamentally physical. Yeah. I, I think that, um, maybe it was this need for, for concrete answers, um, that, it's it's an attractive um, way of, of of viewing the world, right? That everything's predetermined, and that it's all in our genes, and that if you understand the coding of our genes, then that will explain everything. It's much more complicated than that, obviously. And 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 even when he he wrote the book, and and certainly when he discovered the structure of of DNA, there was so much that was unknown about DNA, right? And and um. You know, he speculates in the book that, you know, DNA could, uh, you know, give rise to RNA, which then, you know, gives you protein, that sort of central dogma of of molecular biology, um, without really understanding, you know, just how actually wild and and weird DNA is. It's, um, you know, they couldn't have known at the time or that, you know, most of DNA doesn't actually code for genes. Um, and but even in those this intergenetic spaces, there's a lot going on that control, you know, whether genes are switched on and off. You you have yeah. portions of DNA that can jump around. Um, you have RNA, which is a whole other you know uh, thing to, to to consider. There's a lot that they didn't know and that they couldn't appreciate at the time. That that does make the whole idea of is everything coded in our DNA much 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 more complex. Absolutely, yeah. I guess for me, kind of going back to the whole idea of, you know, how women and, and specifically, you know, women scientists were treated at the time is is interesting because I, you know, I was a female scientist and I was very lucky in that I was supported throughout um, by by my mentors and whenever, I never felt that I couldn't do something because I was a woman, but you, you see here. are you, are you no longer a female scientist? Uh, I, I, I don't sit at a bench anymore. Okay. Um, okay. I guess that's a good question. I, I do analyze clinical studies and I, I design clinical studies. So that's a form of science. Yeah. But it's, it's not the the basic science that's described here. 
um, I don't hold a pipette in my hand anymore. Okay. If, if that's the definite, that's a very poor definition of what a scientist is, obviously. <laughs> um, no, no, but it, it worked but, though, for, for these purposes. So, yeah. so you were saying that um, just your own cultural experiences of being a female scientist. I, I was really, I feel I was really lucky in that I was supported by my mentors throughout. I never felt that I, I couldn't do something or, or achieve something just based on my gender. But um but it's important to note that, um, you know, even today you, you do see, see that happening. And I was reminded of that when I was digging into the story of mRNA, which we all know is a hot topic now because of the coronavirus vaccine yeah, um, you know, yeah, that's been enabled yeah. by mRNA technology. And, um, you know, the woman, one, one of the women behind this, uh, you know, important technology, her name is Karolin Kariko. She's a Hungarian scientist. And her story is incredible because she was really at every turn denied recognition and resources to, to do her work. And it was really just shoot through sheer determination and belief in her work that, that she was able to, to persevere. Yeah. Um, you know, she was at UPenn or she still actually is technically at UPenn affiliated with them. And she just wasn't getting anywhere with her research. And she, her research was focused on immunogenicity of, of mRNA. So people had the idea to potentially look at mRNA for vaccines for a long time, but there were some key problems with it. And, and one of them was that it's highly immunogenic, which means that when they injected mRNA into to lab rats, um, there was such a severe reaction, immune reaction, that the rats all died. And oh, wow. that's certainly not something you want a human to go through. Um, the body just immediately turned on in destroying the mRNA that was injected. And so um, a big problem that had to be solved was how to make mRNA not immunogenetic, how to you know prevent the body from immediately turning on it and going into overdrive. And, um, you know, she, she looked at in this for a long time and didn't have a lot of success. And then um, UPenn threatened to, you know, fire her and, and, kick her out. Um, she stayed on, but they cut her pay and basically gave her, her no resources. She was getting paid less than a lab technician um, when she stayed on. But she met a collaborator at UPenn, Drew Weissman, who believed in her work and had money, more yeah. importantly, to fund her, her studies. And, you know, th- together they were able to discover, you know, why mRNA was so immunogenic and, and how they could uh, modify the bases um, in a way to, to, to thwart the, the immune system to prevent that reaction, that immune reaction. And, you know, UPenn, even after she published these papers and it was eventually appreciated that this was important technology, they never reinstated her professorship. Oh, and it's, they, they stated that she wasn't professor material and you just have to wonder why, why that was so. And, you know, eventually Someday soon, hopefully, she and Weissman will win a Nobel Prize for their efforts, um, for their work, because it's certainly well-deserved. But it, it brings up a lot around how women in science are viewed. I was looking up a few, I was looking up a few other uh, people to see how many of these people were working in research universities, just thinking about why is the research university the place where science happens? And uh, found the story of Marie Curie uh, only getting a professorship after she has a Nobel Prize. 
and then they still won't give her a lab. Mm-hmm. Like she still doesn't actually have any um, research space, even after she has a Nobel prize. Um, eventually she finally does get one, but it's very similar story to what you're saying now, which might be that this woman would only get a lab after a Nobel prize. And um, that question of why, uh, why professor material? Why, why would somebody have to be professor material in order to get the, um, the scientific support that they need for their research? It seems like such a strange, brittle, contingent thing that happened because of a bunch of, a bunch of social accidents that turned the site of science, like universities are the site of science in many ways. But why? You know, like it could have gone so many different ways. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think, um, you know, you have systems being built upon old systems and, and not a lot of reflection into how it could be built better. Um, maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's just propping up those who are already, you know, in, in power. But, um, you know, you, you kind of see you see this reflected even, even, I would argue it's better today, but it's, it still hasn't gone away. And, um, you know, even last year's um, Nobel Prize recipients, um, they were two women, mm-hmm. Jennifer mm-hmm. Dudna and Emmanuelle Charpentier for, for their work on CRISPR gene editing technology. Um, you know, even they, at some point, there, there was some controversy stirred up because some people were trying to diminish their their contributions. And a lot of people got up in arms because it was yet another, you know, white male trying to diminish the work of, of two female scientists. Um, yeah, it seems like all of the struggles of the 20th century on some level, all of the social changes, all of the um, angst of the century has to, it comes down to a combination of needing technology and like very various kinds of intellectual technology in order to run a society that didn't used to be necessary and uh, just angst over all of the ways society has to change in order to produce that technology. It's like nobody's ever done this before in all of human history. Nobody's ever successfully changed a society's power structure from the inside quickly, effectively toward equality but it's necessary now. Yeah, I, I guess we just, we just we have to keep trying. Can't give up. Exactly. Or, or yeah, giving up looks like we all die. <laughs> um, maybe that's the end. Maybe that's the note we end on. That's a very <laughs> morbid way to end. Okay, let's, let's end on something else. Let's look at our notes and see if we've got any other good, good ending notes. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, a, a silver lining to Rosalind Franklin is that, you know, unfortunately, she, you know, she did die very young. Um, I know. 37. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah that, I was, that's not, the, but it was like, okay, that's not the silver lining. But, um, you know, she was never, you know, recognized by the Nobel Committee. But, um, you know, she, she went on even after the, the structure was elucidated. She went on to, to do more research and, um, you know, she wasn't able to finish it. But one of her colleagues, Erin um, Klug, did continue her work and, and did win a Nobel 
um, later on for, for the work, you know, that he continued that she had started. And so, you know, I feel in a sense that her, her legacy did live on, not just in, you know, the X-ray crystallography structures that she developed, but, but in other contributions as well. Yeah. I, I also, maybe just because I was raised in a um, Rosalind Franklin household, I think I probably learned her name before I learned Watson and Crick's. Um, I think that, I think people are sort of bearing her torch in many ways. I think people consider her a, a hero. Um, I also think that there's, there's something wonderful about the idea of having an amazing idea really fast and getting to publish it. Like I, I feel the thrill inside this, this work of like getting to put something together that hasn't quite ever been put together before just how quick the timeline is. Yeah, it's, it's a real race. Um, it kind of reminds me of how quickly research is being churned out now for the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really been amazing, you know, in the 14 months since it really blew up into a pandemic, the number of publications and understanding of, of what it is and how its effect on, on people is, is just, it's astronomical. Um, and a lot of it is a result of, of collaboration and talking to each other. Like you can't um, put all this together so quickly without that, those structures in place. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, all of the, the meta work that has to be done in order for people to actually be able to collaborate effectively. Yeah. You know, I was also, it was funny. I was thinking about how um, you guys have been categorizing stories as either um a monster story or a haunted house story? Oh yes, Sandy's, Sandy's <laughs> amazing work. Yeah, <laughs> I was really thinking about this. Like, I think this is a monster story for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of in, in two ways, where like Rosalind Franklin was really originally cast as the monster, but it's it's Watson who eventually turns into the monster. Um, and then also the idea of like so this Pandora's box of technology being open, right? Like this really unleashed. Um, you know, much of medicine and science as we know it today. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of, um, I think a lot of the people who come up with really, really awful discoveries quickly realize the destructive power of the thing that they've come up with. Uh, so, you know, people working on atomic bombs, people like, I guess, Nobel himself, uh, the, this is relating to my own work, the philosophers who first started thinking about nationalism in terms of um, uh, what makes us unlike them philosophically, which is sort of like underlies the work that eventually becomes Nazism. Like they, they could see the destructive potential of, of what they were doing. I don't think Watson can see any destructive potential in what he's doing. And I think that he becomes the monster. He becomes the person who's destroyed by it, but who's just looking around, like, instead of seeing people seeing like genes, genes everywhere, you're all genetically <laughs> inferior. <laughs> um, and like Darwin, I think understood the destructive power of what he was saying. That yeah, I mean, it, was it, it takes someone with foresight to to actually see that, and and Watson clearly didn't have that kind of foresight. Yeah, 
Yeah. But I, I think it's, you know, it, it really is a, a double-edged sword, right? It's unleashed some horrible things, but it's also unleashed some incredible things that's advanced our societies. And, you know, we, again, see that in right in action with the coronavirus where we, we really couldn't have developed a vaccine this quickly um, without the technology. And also, you know, with, with the desire and, and the, the push from various governments and, and companies to do it right. Like that's, I think the other thing to, to note that where there's a will, there's a way. And sometimes things don't happen just because it's not deemed important enough. Yeah. Including um, making sure that the, the collaboration continues to actually distribution. That was our episode on the structure of DNA. Thank you to Maria Naylor, and as always, to Adam Bear for our music and the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. We love hearing from listeners, so please write to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week. 